If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. John is back from London. You're looking particularly refreshed after your travels. Uh, yes, indeed. How was it? London was fantastic. I know we we both live in London, but every time I go back now, I'm amazed at how it's constantly rejuvenating itself. It's like Dundee. <laughs> not quite, <laughs> not quite, but it was great. How are you? Where were you up to? I'm great. I was up in the Tallis Stadium, the cauldron that is the Tallis oh, Stadium yes. last night Yes, yeah. for Rovers against Sligo. And it was like 6,000 people there. Huge apps, 2-1 to Rovers. Although yeah, in fairness, yeah, yeah. Sligo actually played Rovers kind of off the park for about for a lot of the game. Oh, right. But luckily, luckily there was uh, there was two good opportunities taken. But it's, I mean, again, it's the League of Ireland is, I, I've told you before, you have to come with me. It's, it's, it's transformed. Well, as as you were up in Tala Stadium, I was in Stamford Bridge it's during the, the week. difference between you and me. So <laughs> I go to Tala you go to West London. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fantastic. I got tickets for a chelsea Brentford match. Not a great match, has to be said. Chelsea were way better than Brentford on the night, but Brentford had two shots on goal and oh, scored God. twice, and that was it. That Game was it. over. Game over. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, the wages of one Chelsea player for the week, <laughs> for the week, yeah. are more than the combined wages of all Rovers players for the year. Now think about that. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even a player like Kante, but Kante score. <laughs> oh, see what he did there. Anyway, enough <laughs> of our football. I was no, I was teaching economics all week in Trinity, which was great. I, you know, I love. It's actually one of my favourite times of the year. Is that time I'm teaching in college, mm. and I was teaching economic history and all sorts of stuff. And that's what we're going to talk about today, John. We're Excellent. going to talk about economic history, biological history, environmental history. The whole thing, because we're going to talk to Peter Frankopan, who's coming to Dorky in Fantastic. six weeks' time to the Dorky Book Festival. Also, a little announcement: Tom Hanks is coming to Dorky. The actor, the actor. Jeez, that's a big one. He's actually written a fantastic novel. It's brilliant. It's a. It's based on the movie business, but it's like oh, right. it's an episodic, almost history of twentieth century America. It's really brilliant. It's not fi- nonfiction. Non. Brilliant, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. he also published a book of short stories. 
Short stories about typewriters. Yes. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. So, Bizarre. But yeah, no, really but he's got an obsession with typewriters, right? He has got a, 250 typewriters, ancient typewriters. And <laughs> no, really, and he has it with, yeah. the, with typing, typewriters, with writing. So that'll be great. Also, I think one of the really fascinating events at Doku will be Bono and Fintan O'Toole together talking about their memoirs. Because both of them have written right. biographies, their own biographies. Yeah, yeah. Last year, and I'm going to put the two of them on stage, just the two of them. They're both more or less the same age, same Dublin background. Yeah, born. That's true. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And fascinating. Well, Bono's book is brilliant, well, out, I, outstanding. Yeah, it's I didn't read it. I listened to it, and it is unbelievable as an audiobook. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliantly produced. It's brilliantly produced and he also is an amazing performer. And the yeah. stories... Yeah, and it's the way he tells the stories. The stories are yeah. so, so good. Yeah. Fintan's book yeah. is again this brilliant history of Ireland. Brilliant history and it's little, little vignettes. So Bono's biography, Fintan's biography, the two of them together, it'll be Monumental. A brilliant history and picture, picture of, 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 of Dublin two and of, Ireland. Two of the most significant people to have come out of this country, actually. Yeah. In their times, right? In terms of in terms of their achievements, what they've done, all that sort of stuff. So looking forward to that. But we have a treat for you. Go Peter Frankopan. Now, you know Peter Frankopan. Yes. The historian, economic historian, but he's got this new book out and he's called The Earth transformed mm. and untold history and it is an amazing book right it's it's basically it's the history of humanity through the prism of our relationship with the planet now obviously that's absolutely crucial now given what we're doing to the planet but what peter Even just this week actually in spain 40 degrees hottest april ever here it is freezing cold, freezing cold, lashing rain. California, the heaviest snow, even in April. And I was in Vancouver with six degrees. Remember, I told you it was yeah. miserable <laughs> over there, right? There's something not There's right, something right? Exactly. <laughs> but Peter Frankman, brilliant historian, but this book is exceptional. Mm. So it's basically a book, I think, in two parts. We'll talk to Peter in a second, right? Yeah. So the first part is all this amazing history, economic history, socialist, demographic history of how we came to be this species and how our relationship with the planet is the defining. Second part then is probably from around the Industrial Revolution to now, which is what we are doing to the planet, how yeah. we are destroying the planet. Yeah. And it's brilliant stuff. Anyway, listen, why don't we go to Oxford, I suspect, and talk yep. to Peter. The Earth Transformed... The Untold Story. I've actually got the review copy here. Peter, it is a wonderful, wonderful, unbelievably detailed, enormous amount of hard work. Just before I start the book, how... Did you say masterpiece? The line isn't very clear. The masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Outrageous masterpiece. This is like a history of humanity through the prism of our relationship with the environment. It strikes me that maybe the first... Big chunk of the book, and I call it chunk because this is it's a weighty, weighty tome, is maybe how the environment and the planet affected humans. And then maybe the second part of the book is how humans affected the planet. If 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 that's fair, yeah. if that's fair to say. Yeah. What I love is the ancient stuff. Can we start in the in the beginning, right? You devote the first, I'd say, hundred odd pages to discussing the origins of the species. I think even one of the chapters is called the origins of the whole thing. Can you explain that the impact of the planet 
on us at the very early stages before we go on to talk about economics and all the good stuff around that? Yeah. Well, you know, um, forget about, you know, put climate change and the natural world to one side for where we are today. Our species wouldn't have been supported by the atmospheric conditions on this planet for the vast majority of its time since it was formed. So uh, we're the beneficiaries of a benign, perfect set of conditions, the Goldilocks zone that works. And that's why in the past there were other kinds of life forms. I mean, everyone always thinks about dinosaurs, but those are quite new arrivals too. Um, you know, but so for four and a half billion years, this wouldn't have been a great place for our species to live. So that that puts into, I guess, some sharp relief how we're not just our own worst enemies. You've got biology to contend with. And if you believe in evolution, which I suspect most of your listeners do and don't have a problem with, then everything's about adaptation. And if you don't adapt or you can't adapt, then then you're replaced by other kinds of species, biota, animals, pathogens, and a warming wor- a world at the moment is great for some species. It's, it's bad for big mammals. It's bad for some types of marine species. But if you don't believe in evolution and you you take the story of the creation literally, which is, you're, you know, fair enough if you want to do that, I suppose you think about it and you come to the same kind of conclusion, which is God created the world as a perfect environment. And the last thing he did was, having admired his work, was to put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he's, again, once, you know, you're there one job. Right, just don't touch that tree. Yeah. Otherwise, the apple. Just the just leave the. Yeah. F- yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, every day is a great day. It's Love Island where no one's watching. You know, it's great. <laughs> Everybody's happy, and you get. And everyone looks like Love Island. And Adam yeah. looks great, and Eve looked great. Yeah. No. You don't need sun cream. Everything's perfect, <laughs> and you know, and, and I mean that in the kind of way in which the Book of Genesis tells it is that this is a perfect world where everything is perfect, and when they eat the apple, the punishment is ecological and environmental right? Your boots yes. out of the Garden of Eden, your descendants are made to scrabble around on the dust and to worry about not enough rain or too much rain, and you wouldn't have enough to eat. And, and then in fact, there are future later episodes where because people behave so badly, make so much noise or immoral, you know, the population of Sodom and Gomorrah demolished. And in fact, I write in the book, there's evidence of comets or airbursts that flatten the city that probably is the historical Sodom or Gomorrah, probably Gomorrah, and you can see sort of the concentrate, you know, everything for a 25 kilometer area is flattened. And you can understand how people would have under- tried to make sense of this to say, well, obviously, we've been behaving badly. I thought that's why we've been punished literally from the skies. And you have lots of belief systems in, in, in South Asia, in India, in Chinese civilizations, in Mesoamerica, the early civilizations, all trying to make sense of why there of are the changes in the world around environmental us. conditions. And it's very always quite closely linked with human behavior. In China, the mandate of the emperor, the mandate from heaven, as it's called, the emperor is designed to be a sort of bellwether that if everybody gets what they want, he's a good man. And if he, if people are not getting what they want, if there are harvests and prices go up and whatever, it's obvious that the leader is a bad person or living in an unreasonable way. And those kinds of things, I think, set up those discussions about the world of today in a slightly different way. I, I suppose the other thing which is important is that, as well as being the fluke of atmospheric conditions, we and every other life form on Earth are the beneficiaries of five great mass extinctions, one of which did take out the dinosaurs. Otherwise, uh, we'd still have T-Rex running around the place or walking around with his feathers or her feathers. And so everything that survived a bit like I went to a Black Death conference when I was quite a young course graduate you, student. Course, of course you did. It's what better way to spend a weekend. Tell me, what is a Black Death conference like? Sounds like heavy it's, metal. It's, like, it's metallers, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's a, like Donington. It's a Finnish metal band. <laughs> you know what? That's that's much better than the conference was. Funny enough, those conferences about the Black Death are always quite upbeat, actually, because um, 
it's always breakthroughs and you know i can measure exactly how many more people died or well, at the moment the black death conferences it's that we don't see that many people dying in poland and people in poland keep paying their taxes while the black death is striking so people are trying to work out is it because the polls paid more or maybe the black death didn't happen or maybe it's because as in fact we now know autoimmune um responses are different between us all this is some of the genetic stuff i'm talking about so people who had resistance to high higher levels of resistance to covid have higher admixtures of neanderthal dna in their dna in no their, way in their. yes and in, in the same way that i write about in my book that one of the reasons why transatlantic slavery was so important wasn't just coerced free labor it's that the the most valuable humans who were sold and had lives and they not just their lives lives of their descendants absolutely treated with humiliation, degradation, and all their benefit of their work went to other people. But they had racial superiority over the Western yep. se- European settlers because they have, a in many parts of West Africa, a genetic variation, mutation, that gives high levels of resistance to malaria. So when malaria spread across the Caribbean and the southern part of the United States, where life expectancy for white settlers, you know, half the population didn't reach the age of 18, and a majority, you know, sorry, reached the age of five, uh, let alone 18, it meant that if you can have populations who are going to have long life expectancies because they were genetically well suited or, or better suited to pathogens. So all these things, I think, take us into thinking about history in a slightly different way. It's not just kings and queens. It's not just what you know, battles and war and empire building in Europe. It's not just about race, racial problems and humiliations and persecutions and prejudice, which are all really important. It's about how do you layer into those conversations to add in rather than to take away. But nature, the environment, and climate fit into all of that all the time. So you're absolutely, I mean, the book is full of these little gems, like the predisposition to having a better immune system against malaria and how this impacted on certain slave populations from Africa. And then again, how their ancestors were traumatized by a, a genetic inheritance that was an adaptive sort of inheritance. And yeah, the sense, the, you know, the, the, it's not just that the transatlantic slavery, thank goodness, ended, et cetera, et cetera. And not just, you know, we've got to deal with the inequalities that still persist very strongly to today. It's that in parts of Africa that were heavily exploited for coercive slave labor, levels of trust are much lower. Levels of state building today are much lower. In some parts, polygyny or, or men having multiple wives are much higher, all directly traceable back to these patterns that have deep, deep roots. So you really can't understand today without understanding the past. And that is why these sort of monumental books, masterpieces, dare I say, Peter, masterpieces. Well, That's course. going on the cover. It's definitely, well, it's, going yeah. to, it's going to be the Irish edition. But we're starting very, very early doors. And we're talking about how we became the, the settled species that we are and how we stopped nomading around and how we actually settled down in cities and yeah. all that trade. And you just say, you know, Changing climates did not create the need for political systems, pave the way for the rise of towns and cities, or lead to the development of rising systems. All were products of rising population numbers, greater demands on water and food resources in particular, and the need for social organization. Again, can you give us a sense of that transition? So the way in which we transitioned from nomadic to organized with these social structures of cities and hierarchies and kings and queens and all that sort of good stuff, and the role the planet played in this? I think sometimes there's a perception, and, it, it, and it, it, it's not always how historians have written about it, but sometimes it is, and, and it's certainly how it's perceived, is that there is a kind of moment where there's a transition from sedentary lifestyles, from hunter-gathering to settled societies. And it's not necessary to disaggregate or to kind of think about it in that way. I think it, it oversimplifies. So most mobile Populations, nomads, my, my, you know, the people I work on in, in Central Asia, on the Silk Roads, and so on, 
often described as being mobile and uh, nomadic, but there are lots of permanent settlements that nomadic peoples have. There are lots of ways in which this is a very blurred line. And the idea that you kind of either one or the other, or you live in a town and therefore you never leave the city limits, but somehow food arrives, or somehow you can get hold of protein, which you generally typically can't do in cities in any scale because you need herds or flocks yeah. or whatever the, your food sources are coming from. So there's interactions between town, country, settled, nomadic, hunter-gathering. It's, it's always very blurry, right? That's my professor mode gone. But so the key, I guess, is when you get demographic expansion, often to do with high life expectancies, often to do with high calorific inputs to so the places where there's abundant water, the places where there are wild cereals, and then eventually domestication of crops, and you're capable of keeping animals and using them for protein and dairy, textiles, and so on, you can attract more and more people in. And not always, but often that starts to then create hierarchies. And those hierarchies can be based around who has the best access to water. It can be around uh, military prowess and your size, your biceps. Do you have neighboring confrontations with neighboring peoples and therefore the origins of sort of manliness as a kind of virtue? Is it to do with how those natural environments change? For example, in the Indus Valley, we see very low levels of social and economic inequality. All houses typically the same kind of size. One smart answer to that is that the courses of the Himalayan river systems changes because of the way the glaciers behave and how the water streams down the mountainsides. And that means that the rivers change their location all the time. So you can't have your giant apartment on the Liffey or on the Thames that is the kind of jackpot location because it's constantly changing. And in fact, one of the stories of India as a whole is how India is a precarious place for cities because it's not just from the Himalayas, but in India typically is that cities will move their locations. And even into the 17th century, you find travelers who will write and say, there was this big city and I came back three weeks later and everyone was gone. Or there was a big city and I came back a year later and it had been picked up and moved 50 kilometers the other direction. And it's it's because you need to interact with your environment. So when there are more of you, there's a kind of series of galvanizing impacts that are to do with availability of food, availability of water. If you have lots of fields around you and everybody can grow what they like, But if you have prescribed regions, if you have areas where you've got your strip like the Nile or Mesopotamia, these great flat lands, but then you've got mountains on either side, then there's a kind of finite limit of people that can be supported. And at that point, you tend to find the first early cities globally is prescribed areas. So there's a a nice patch, but either side of those nice patches are patches that are not B grade or C grade, but they're not suitable at all. And those kinds of pressures lead to some of the kinds of things that eventually create writing systems, they create things like scripts, and eventually one of your favorite topics at the moment, money systems to allow people to have sort of simplify their ability to exchange. Now, this is what I I love about the book is the fact that you're coming at things from a planetary angle, which in many ways, our education system has sort of ignored, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it now on our history and, and economic history. And, and in a way, for example, one of the, the key ideas from the books, this this constant battle and exchange between man and nature and, and who's who's dominating who. And from the economics perspective, what has always been fascinating is we've always said, well, but man dominates. And, and this is our whole thing. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question. Irish history has been defined by, certainly in the last two or 300 years, a famine, which is precisely one of the major points of the book. To what extent is that Irish famine history a universal history, really? Well, I think it's very difficult when one has, you know, one to two million deaths 
when you see the kind of the economic implications, the social implications that last for decades and centuries yeah. afterwards, I think it's very difficult to compare and contrast and go, well, look, it's completely normal. I, I, I don't mean it's normal. I mean, there was, there was all sorts of political and economic structures which exacerbated and amplified the original environmental catastrophe. But right. at its core was an over-dependence on one crop and a very large population. Right. Well, I guess, I guess if you st- take a step back, it's from my perspective, and, you know, there are such fantastic scholars working on this, you know, Cormac Agrada is, is obviously an absolute, is a genius and a beautiful yeah. writer as well. So, I mean, there, there are so many people who work on this. But I, from my perspective, my sort of humble contribution are first that to point out, which is, you know, obvious, but the potato is not indigenous to Ireland. Yeah. You know, it's associated very closely with the famine and so on, but it's to do with exploitation of natural resources in other parts of the world. And the potato, as I say in my book, you know, changed the world because of its calorific inputs. It means it's more robust to being able to survive bad weather conditions. It provides high levels of riboflavin and vitamins as well. And therefore, it's a kind of wonder, it's a wonder source. And when you can introduce a wonder source, it becomes a monocrop because you don't need to bother doing anything yeah. else because you, you can go convinced. So the first one is, I guess, the realisation that empire is all about exploitation of natural resources. Yes. So, And the book the, is very the, strong the, on this. It's very, very yeah, strong. The Europeans' expansion to, to the United States, uh, or to the Americas rather, was about taking things, right? Metals to start with, but then taking things like rubber, like potatoes, and finding out ways to maximise their economic output. So the potato is a product of imperialism, of course, and to do with man's exploitation or human's exploitation of, of nature, and then reimposing these resources in other parts of the world where they're not indigenous, like, like in Ireland. That's the first one. Second is the excitement about some of the uh, genetic stuff. So the phylogenetic tree of the pathogen that caused the potato blight in the 1840s, we can now, with some degree of confidence, measure co- comes from a South American source. So that speaks to the fact that Ireland's suffering in the in the 19th century is again absolutely correlated to globalization. So if you don't have ships, if you don't have connectivities, if you don't have people traveling to the to the coastal regions of Peru, which is where the blight comes from, or certainly from Peru, then disease doesn't travel. So same way, no flights out of Wuhan, no one gets COVID. Right? So it's the same, so, it's exactly the same process. So globalization of, of people moving goods around and going to write books about, you know. Charles Darwin exploring the Galapagos, you take other things with you. It's not just about ideas, you bring danger and risk. So in that sense, that's kind of something that's interesting is it speaks of the globalized world of the 19th century, where steamers meant that it was cheaper to get wheat from the United States to sell on markets in London from the United States than it was from Dublin. Yeah. Right. And yet this, Which is, this, this well, I think they call it the, the grain invasion or something of Europe, where the grain price collapses and you have this huge demographic right, it's about logistics it's that you can ship over long distance cheaper than you can ship over rail yeah and that i think is an interesting one and then the other thing that is important about the irish famine is that it's it's human error right and so amartya sen uh, who won the nobel prize in for economics in 1998 not only but you know a lot of his his work on bengal famines of the 20th century and of the 18th century are that there's almost always food available, but it's bad political decision-making yeah. that makes things go wrong. That's his big thing, isn't it? Famines are man-made. Right. That if you look at, at all famines, is in actual fact, you're absolutely right, that the food is there. It just doesn't go to the right people at the right time. So in the case of, in the case of Ireland, the ridiculously stupid, short-sighted, racially prejudiced, all of those things blend in to make a difficult situation a catastrophe. 
And I guess that that is a kind of takeaway for other periods, other events, perhaps including, again, COVID, that if things have been shut down quicker by the Chinese government, by governments all over Europe, but you know, we kept flying planes from Wuhan direct to London for 10 days after the WHO being told there was a problem. And most of those planes were empty, by the way, because no one in Wuhan could get out. So you know, I think that, that, that the human insertion into how do we compete with biological problems and with things that affect our food sources and uh, globalization, redistribution of resources around the world, over-dependence, like you mentioned, over-dependence not just for calories, but also on payments, et cetera, et cetera, and then the failed interventions that make things worse, inability to, to deal with a crisis, then sends into a cascading effect, not just of poverty, but of famine, of death, of disease, of all these things that then concertina and, and leave deep, deep, deep scars on historical legacies, not, not, not surprisingly. So it, it's unique insofar as these are a set of circumstances that applied to Ireland in the 1840s, but each of these other things that you might compare it to have a unique set of circumstances that, that fold into, you know, total catastrophe. No, no, absolutely. Now, let's look at the, the modern world, because we could spend hours talking about the various incidents where, in a way, the environment was the nudge for collapse of civilizations, for changes of civilizations. But your, the book is very, very strong on yeah, the... Yeah, but I, I say that, I mean, I'm, I, again, that needs nuance. A civilization that collapse is really bad if you're Elon Musk, right? If your money goes, your private jet goes, and nothing works, and you can't buy your Twiglets or whatever you eat on a Saturday night. <laughs> but if you are an immigrant worker cleaning people's houses in downtown LA, or, you know, to pick one location, and there's civilizational collapse and, and air travel goes, you know, then obviously the risk of violence is high. The ability to get your food from supply networks is important. But social inequality folds very quickly when there's societal collapse. So it's bad if you're an archaeologist because people stop building massive buildings out of bricks. People stop writing great historical texts. But for rural populations in particular, for the bottom half of society, maybe even higher in, in agrarian societies, as long as you have food that you can cultivate and bring for yourself and get access to, societal collapse doesn't mean the end of the world. It's bad. I mean, you can't get your Louis Vuitton rucksacks. That's a problem. But it's not a problem for most people. It's a problem for very, very few people. But they're the ones who write the histories or commission the histories to write. So it always looks worse than it is. So I write about that in with the Maya, for example, or with Mesopotamian societies, that, you know, we've got to be quite careful when we think about societal collapse. It means a bad thing. But, um, you know, we had societal collapse with the 08 crisis that, you know, you know better than I do. And it turns out the people who did best out of that were the super rich who became yeah, way richer. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the people at the bottom have, have slid, slid backwards. So societal collapse is all in the eye of the beholder. And we mustn't get ourselves, I think, trapped by thinking that this is bad. Yeah, yeah these, are, these are great catastrophes and these are great moments in history and the world changes. And you're certainly, certainly the case. A lot has been written about, for certainly the Mayan collapse, that this was some awful tragedy that befell the world and was never the same again. And what you're saying is that life goes on, people adapt. Well, you know, the whole just thing. The, I mean, like, like, like Gladiator, right? That's always a good reference point. All those always crowds good. Cheering, cheering Russell Crowe. It's true, when Rome folds in on itself, the Western provinces, it doesn't take much to cut supply chains. It doesn't take much for administrative systems and institutions to fall apart. And so when the big invasions of the Goths and the Huns and so on in the, in the fifth century take place, Actually, levels of violence are relatively low from what we can tell, but the administration is what collapses. But for people living in Hibernia, as it was, or in you know yeah. south of the Hadrian's Wall, 
it's true. Those dinner parties don't happen. Those Russell, you know, the the, yeah. the, the games at the in the Coliseum. Do I not entertain you? That's a, don't that... happen. Exactly. You can still, you know, you probably have a slightly lower excitement of what you might be able to eat. But population still keep breeding. They still keep integrating with each other. Their geographical frames of reference are much much lower. The long distance trade disappears. But for everybody who survived that, of which everybody in Western Europe is a descendant today, you know, life <laughs> went on. And so, you know, your quality of life may have been lower without Russell Crowe's leopards being killed in the arena. But, you know, it's just always worth taking a step back. So anyway, that was a footnote, a very long one. It's a good footnote. I, no, I, I like it. Now, let's talk about now, Peter. If you were to encapsulate the basic thesis of the book. I think it's reinserting how we think about the natural world around us, how it has provided the canvas on which our, our world around us has been played out, and then how we've changed that environment and the natural world around us for both for good and for ill. I mean, obviously, the fact that we are in a quite a precarious state right now is significant. And although climate change is, is the obvious sort of big red flag, and the thing that people are most keen to talk about, it's about environmental degradation on lots of different levels. So a quarter of all deaths in places like India are caused by air pollution. So every single person in the city of New Delhi is breathing air quality that is equivalent to smoking 40 Benson and Hedges or any other cigarette brand per day. Wow. Across Southeast Asia, so not India, not China, which are two heavily polluted countries, across Southeast Asia, Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, you know, looking at a population edging towards a billion people, life expectancy for every man, woman and child is one and a half years lower than it would be if the air was high enough quality for WHO standards, which it's not. So, you know, eight times more people in Afghanistan died in 2017 from air pollution than they did from combat or terrorist activities. Eight times. Wow. You know, your risk wow. from air pollution is about 90 times that of the threat of terrorism or war. It's about six times greater than alcohol, five or six times higher than it is of AIDS and HIV. So air pollution is one. Microplastics, when we put detergents in our shirts to wash and our jeans and everything else, we think it's dirty water, it must get cleaned up somewhere. But levels of microplastics now you can measure per cubic meter in the Arctic and the Antarctic. All of us have microplastics in our bloodstreams. We're ingesting, breathing in the air around us. And, and regardless of what you think about what one thinks about capitalism, consumerism, climate change, and so on, it's obviously not great to have a world that is so highly polluted. And there's been a bit of that in the press recently about sewage being dumped in rivers. And we think, oh, surely these companies should be fined or it can be fixed up. But we're, we're expending resources faster than we replenish. And when you put that into deforestation, overgrazing, water shortage, you know, even in 2010, the EU as a whole, which at that time, the United Kingdom was a part, if I remember right. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Long time ago. A long, long time, ago. time ago. Even in 2010, 19% of the EU was water stressed. Right. And as we're talking today, at the end of April, we have the highest temperatures recorded in Spain, I think on record. So we're above 40 degrees in some parts of Spain. Morning temperatures in Marrakesh were above 40 degrees yesterday morning. And that in itself is not necessarily a problem. You can innovate, you can put air conditioning units, but water becomes a challenge quite quickly. And soils get baked very hard and degrade quicker with multiple years of this kind of temperature. So you can see us a whole set of circumstances coming together that are in themselves, not great, but they're not critical. The problem is if you layer them onto everything else going on, energy prices, war, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, incompetent governance, migration patterns, rises of Asia, where the International Energy Organization thinks that energy consumption is going to rise by 50% in the next 20 years. 
and that energy's got to be generated from somewhere. Yeah. So you, you'd probably think if you're an investor, if you're worried about your kids, you should at least be trying to understand what is happening. And I think a lot of this happens in, in what Ken Cobb Pomerantz and other called ghost acres. You know, when you're in Ireland, you don't think where your genes come from. Oh, and I mean, I, me, I don't think where my jeans or my shirts come from or my peanut butter or my Kit Kat or ice cream, all of which have palm oil that's been made typically in Indonesian palm oil plantations that have deforested large parts of Southeast Asia, often through burning, which then has life expectancy issues on people in the region. So I think trying to explain how the world actually functions is an important thing that economists are quite good at doing. But we historians, I think, don't always do. And I think so reintegrating geography, economics, history, biological sciences, plant sciences, and so on into a whole gives people more information so they can work out for themselves. For example, Coca-Cola sells 20,000 plastic bottles per second. And when the head of consumer affairs was asked, you know, shouldn't you be using renewables or glass? They said, our customers want plastic, so we're going to give them what they want. And so working out is that, should that be addressed by regulation? Should it be customers who demand change? Should it be ESG? All those things are, are people have their own opinions, and I'm not there to sell them a simple solution, but to inform them, because, you know, I'm a simple educator. And just before we go, because we will be talking about this at Dalkey, the pair of us on Thursday and Friday, the first two days. But what strikes me of the book is the, a sort of an accelerated pace towards the end. Okay, so we've got the, we've painted the big, big picture of ourselves and the planet and the history. And the stories are marvelous, and the research is un, unfathomable at certain stages. But then there's a sort of a there's a sort of an urgency at the end. Yeah, there is an urgency at the end. There's a Peter Frankopan almost screaming, yeah. almost wake up. I mean, I, I mean, yes, I wrote the book, so I know that. But I mean, I think that um, it's hard because. Lots of people have pr- prophesied the apocalypse since the yeah. beginning. It's almost the first early Yeah, yeah and you, you don't want to be the kind of John the Baptist creature going around in your... That's quite a good image, actually. Yeah, but... <laughs> well, a head on a plate. <laughs> I, I think that that if you'd asked me seven or eight years ago before I started writing, writing this up, you know, was I worried? Did I think innovation, science, technology, capital markets, investment would, would address some of these problems? I'd have said I'd be, you know, quite confident... But as I've kind of read in and seen that, you know, for example, Saudi Arabia spends 700,000 barrels of oil per day just on air conditioning units to keep its air conditioning going. There's not a single lake, single river in Saudi Arabia. It's probably not the first place you choose to build a state because of its climatic conditions. But you can you can defeat nature if you've got the, the deep pockets and you've got the natural resources that you can innovate. But I, I think it's probably fair to say that with carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere now at 425 parts per million compared to pre-industrial revolution about 250 those those pressures do come through and and i think that you know i'm not completely without hope there are lots of things that we can be doing but i think there is an urgency around how do we address some of these things and how do we look at what the future brings and and funnily enough because i work with you know because i've got young students who are all brilliant and very well informed about the world, you know, the way that they are engaging with my our generation and above is, look, we've got terrible debts. We're never going to be able to buy a property. This is particularly a story in, in the developed world. It's, it's the, yeah. Western Europe is more or less the same thing. United States, likewise. You've got in the United Kingdom, we've got a third of all pensioners have assets worth more than a million pounds. They're retiring with 30 years on the clock afterwards. You know, in France, there are riots in the streets because people are trying to retire at 62, where yeah. they're going to live for 35 years plus with pensions being paid for by young... By the younger folk, yeah. yeah. And you also, you burnt all this carbon. So as David Wallace-Wells, the brilliant New York Times writer, put it, 
50% of the world's carbon has been burnt since the first episode of Seinfeld or, you know, since Boris Becker last won Wimbledon or the Berlin Wall came down. So that acceleration is really, really profound. And for young people, the kind of crisis of confidence in political systems means that when you're looking at some of the data around what do you want, what do you think your politicians should be doing, it's not that there's a division between left and right. It's that young people are either say, we don't care, or we don't think you can solve the problem. So there was some research done at the end of last year that I have, I think, at the end of the book, that says something like above half the population under the age of 40 don't believe that elections are requirements in developed economies and in liberal democracies. Yeah, no, I read that. So it's, it's... And as you and I, you know, children of the Cold War era, where we fought for freedoms, we thought that tolerance, uh, ability to have free presses, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, trying to get away from hardline ideological positions, you know, I think those calls for action are going to become louder and louder. And you can adapt if you and you can solve problems like we learned with the coronavirus, but it's really expensive to solve problems at speed. So and of this right magnitude. Now, it, it's how do we get there? And of course, the awful thing about it is the people who are going to be most affected and quickest affected are the ones who have the least responsibility for global warming and for consumption. So typically, the poor populations of sub-Saharan Africa, highly heat exposed, places like Mozambique being hit by multiple cyclones, where normally you'd expect one every so often. Now it comes at five or six per season. You know, what we're seeing happening in Sudan, what we've seen in Somalia, food shortages, migrations, etc., are all going to accelerate. And we need to work out what our responsibility is to help. We've got to work out what implications that has for us. And some of those cascading supply chains will come under pressure. Demographic change is part of our world too in the 21st century. In some parts of the world, it's going to shoot upwards. In some parts, it's collapsing very quickly. But that world is changing very, very rapidly around us. And as an economist or as historian, volatility is itself the danger. You can negotiate change if there's time. You can negotiate areas of stability where there are one or two risks. But when you have lots of things at the same time, war in Ukraine, China on the rise, decoupling a bipartisan anti-Chinese thought, And it doesn't take much for things to topple over. So it feels to me that we are in quite a tricky space. On top of that, again, parts of the world you work on, government debts, national debts, uh, US passing $32 trillion. You know, and I I remember when it went through the $2 trillion ceiling of thinking that that was unmanageable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And before before COVID, the, the average debt per person, according to the IMF globally, was every single man, woman on earth effectively was on the hook for $80,000 each because governments, central banks keep printing money. The fact lady, well, we shouldn't say that anymore. The music eventually stops. I was going to say the fat lady sings, but you know, the, 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 you know, we don't want to be uh, unkind, but the music stops. And when the music stops, like it did for the Mesopotamians, like it did for the Indus Valley, like it did for the Maya, like it did for Venice, like it did for Empire, like it did for Russell Crowe, then you know, there is a set of headwinds that you can't hide against. So making sure you've got your hatches battened down and you know what's coming. And it's probably like like Benjamin Franklin put it better than I could. If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. And I think that that's something we should be thinking about vulnerabilities in our governments across across rich countries, as well as the developing world. Uh, Just that very, very end. It's an amazing close. Peter, listen, thanks so much. And I'll see you in Dorky in a couple of weeks time. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Thanks, David. Cheers. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, do you know what, Mac? I think we should keep that fat lady singing. Keep that record turning as much as possible. Wheel spinning, wheel spinning, wheel spinning. And I was just, I was fascinated by the Benjamin Franklin quote about fail to prepare, prepare to fail. I thought that was Roy Keane. (laughs) I thought that was the great sage of Mayfield. The great sage of Mayfield. Listen, we're going to leave it there. Too much to digest. Fascinating discussion. We'll come back to a lot of that stuff, Mac. We will definitely do that and we'll talk to you Thursday. Take care. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.